Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. With only two episodes left, including this one, in season one, we are turning today to a conversation on treatment for those who sexually offend. We are grateful to be joined today by our friend and colleague, David Prescott. A mental health practitioner of 36 years, David Prescott is the editor of Safer Society Press. He is the author and editor of 20 books in the areas of understanding and improving services to at-risk clients. He is best known for his work in the areas of understanding, assessing, and treating sexual violence and trauma. Mr. Prescott is the recipient of the 2014 Distinguished Contribution Award from the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers and the 2018 recipient of the National Adolescent Perpetration Network's C. Henry Kemp Lifetime Achievement Award. Mr. Prescott currently trains and lectures around the world. Now, as always... This conversation may be difficult to listen to. It might be confronting for some. So it's okay to listen in short chunks, to listen with a friend, or to turn us off completely. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina. We hope you will join us as we take you Beyond Fear. So, David, it is so wonderful to have you with us today. We've been looking forward to this episode all season long as we recognize how crucial it is that people receive proper treatment and care. But the treatment protocols we use today have not always been in place, nor has treatment been readily understood. So I'm wondering if we could start today by having you talk a little bit about the history of treatment for people who sexually offend. Like, what have we learned over the last several decades Fantastic. Well, that that's a wonderful place to start. And thanks for having me on board. It really is great to be here. Um, hey, if I could just go back to your introduction and and make one comment um, uh, following on from it, uh, it's that um, uh, this can be really difficult work. I want to repeat everything that you just said. And everything that I'm about to say follows on from the fact that I've worked with people who've been abused since 1984. Um, I take this issue really, really seriously. Um, and at the same time, it's entirely likely that I might use some humor um, as I talk about it. And that's because I have done this work a very, very long time. But like you, I would um, be uh, entirely happy if we saw the end of sexual violence uh, in our lifetime. So I really just wanted to start there so that I can feel a little bit more comfortable uh, going forward. So um, thank you for understanding everything I say in the spirit in which it's intended. So 
with that, I'll, I'll actually start. One of the things that fascinates me the most in the human services is the way some kinds of treatments get started. Um, we had, uh, for example, um, you know, Bill W. started um, AA because uh, so many psychologists and, uh, and the like um, didn't want to deal with the problem. Nobody could even figure out where alcoholism came from. Was it moral failure or was it some kind of a disease or, or what? And so this wonderful group of people sort of banded together to talk about the issues that were relevant to them and developed what's now AA and, uh, and it's a various spinoffs wonderful stuff. And likewise, we're also seeing self-help groups for people with a sexual interest in children, um, etc. And so in our field, one of the things that always amazes me, if there is a sort of first person who did this work, it would be a man named Kurt Freund. Um, who was in communist Czechoslovakia, who um, really thought of himself as a sexologist and invented a machine called the penile plethysmograph, which is actually in many respects probably just as grim as it sounds. Um, it was a way of measuring men's erections. And uh, not to be outdone, there is a version of it uh, designed for women um, as well. And the reason it was important was that at the time, for the first time ever, we actually had the beginnings of metrics that we could apply to sexuality. But the funny thing is then everybody thought, well, then let's use these metrics around sexual arousal and sexual interest and everything else to design treatment around. How can we get this person to be less aroused by what we don't want him to be aroused by? With every bit of research that came out of this one device, all of a sudden we realized how many questions there still had to be. And, uh, and so uh, there, there's kind of a, a complicated story to it. He just wanted to study human sexuality. Uh, and eventually he left Czechoslovakia in 1968 or thereabouts and settled in Canada, where he did research in this area. Now, it, this might sound like, you know, the dear dead days, but in fact, this happened in living memory for many of us. And it really showed how our first signs of interest in, um, in treating sexual offending was in the one thing that was least likely to change, which is somebody's overall sexuality. So fast forward many, many years, and one of uh, Freud's devotees, a guy named Ray Blanchard, who's been controversial in a number of uh, other areas, but he said basically, look, I, um, I don't believe that I can change what somebody wants, but I can change how they behave around what they want. And as a result, we have to give ourselves a little bit of a break. Way back in the days, we didn't know what we were doing. Things did not turn out so well. And people said, look, we genuinely want to stop these people from doing it again, but we don't have a clue how to do it. Is it about the sexuality? Is it about their willingness to um, commit crimes? Is it about their willingness to hurt others? Just because somebody's sexual interests go in a certain direction does not mean that they actually want to cause harm to other people. But in the minds of many in society, we, it's easy to get these kinds of things confused.
Okay. So in the old days, we thought, well, the first thing we need to know is how dangerous is that per is this person? That's a fair question to ask. So we focused on risk, risk, risk. What are his risk factors? What do we know about risk assessments? And what we found out was our risk assessments weren't very good. Um, and then overall, we slowly, um, as you well know, uh, figured out that in fact, prison-based and sort of correctionally-based treatment programs could work. And this went from the nothing works doctrine into the something works doctrine. The idea being, we know that something works, but we don't quite yet know what it is. So, uh, so that left us in kind of a difficult situation. By the time the late 80s came around, a guy named Paul Jandro came along, and he and many others uh, finally developed the what works model. And I suspect you've talked about it in other podcasts, but basically it's first you want to know um, what kind, uh, how dangerous uh, is this person? And we came to find out that actually the truly dangerous are far and few between. Uh, and that there's many, many, many people out there who, um, along the lines of one of your previous guests, have led otherwise um, okay lives and then gone on to do something reprehensible and have worked hard to rebuild their lives. Okay, so we know there's a kind of piece of dangerousness. Then we know there are some treatment needs, some areas of treatment need that are specifically related to reoffense processes, if you will. Things like impulsivity, things like relationship skills, all of these kinds of things turn out to be really important. So in the old days, when we were assigning numbers to erections, frankly, um, you know, we were missing the point about relationships and attitudes and beliefs and impulsivity and coping styles and things like this. All of this leading to one single sentence. Well, it's a run-on sentence, but I'll say it anyway. If I could have one goal and one goal only for all the people who have sexually abused, it's that they could become increasingly competent in all of their interpersonal relationships and be better able to relate to others empathically. For me, that really is the heart and soul of so much of what we do in treatment and Within that, then we also have to take into account the context in which these people are living. So we went from nothing works to something works to what works, and then gradually came to a place where he said, the last time we looked, nobody likes to do treatment where we get constantly reminded of every little thing we've ever done wrong or may be doing wrong now or may come to do in the future. We need to figure out how do we switch from that which we are going to avoid in the future to that which we can attain. And that's brought me around full circle, seeing all of the clients and all of the treatment programs that I've ever supervised or consulted to all of these clients wanting to work towards a better life in which causing harm to others is unnecessary and undesirable. Ultimately, I want to create a lifestyle that's incompatible with further offending. To people outside of treatment, sometimes that looks a little funny. Why are you talking to them about building a better life? Well, because that's what good risk management actually looks like. It's not about the constant punishment that um, uh, comes with imprisonment or, or whatnot. So that's, that's my sort of whistle-stop tour from the penile plethysmograph to the idea that we can build better lives. 
so thank you for that little bit of history. And that leads like really well into our next question, which is just where are we now? So can you talk about some of the approaches to treatment that we see and use today? So, for example, in California, since 2012, the state has mandated the containment model and the California Sex Offender Management Board um, defines this as requiring supervision by probation or parole, treatment and polygraph and using a victim centered approach. So how do you what's your take there and what do you think about um, where we are currently with treatment? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny because the containment model, um, we want to contain this person in such a way that he or she doesn't get the chance to, to do it again or is unwilling to do it again, seems really good um, on the surface. Who could possibly argue with, with something like that? And we know that um, treatment can work and that under a lot of conditions, treatment with the right supervision can work even better. I like this all in principle. Um, the issue, as far as I'm concerned, then becomes in its implementation. So a good supervising agent is crucial to this mix. Um, however, at, sometimes as it's implemented um, in some circles, some people get trained not to like their clients. Now, some good research perhaps you know by Brandy Blasco um, in Texas and Faye Taxman in New York City has been finding that the qualities of the relationship between probation officer and client uh, can make or break the difference. Probation officers who are viewed as being fair by their probationers are much less likely to get back into trouble again. Then we have the polygraph that's usually a part of that. And um, I have lots of friends who believe in the polygraph and live by the polygraph and um, uh, believe that it's important. And yet I have yet to see the evidence um, that it's making that much of, uh, of a difference. And that's something of an issue. So the bottom line, it seems to me that the containment model is at its best when the team players are acting like members of the same team. And oftentimes in the implementation, that doesn't happen. Probation officers work too hard. Um, treatment providers can't pick up the phone to talk to the, uh, uh, to the probation officers. Polygraph examiners sometimes view their job as uh, to um, detect deception and nothing more than that. Bottom line. What is our goal? I think our goal is to get them to stop offending and to lead a life where offending isn't going to happen. If our goal is for them not to reoffend, it's time to ask, what should we do? And I would suggest going beyond the containment model to really looking at teamwork and how do we build the teams that are going to carry out the mission that we all have and to carry out the promise of something like the containment model. And that then leads to the question, who should we be? And the ultimate answer to that, in my view, is we should be people that do not accept sexual abuse, but absolutely accept the human being in front of us when we're working together. David, you and I have talked a lot about um, survivors of sexual harm, and, and you know the work that I do as a survivor working with people who have sexually offended. Um, this idea that the containment model uses a victim-centered approach. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether or not you believe that to be true? First of all, the idea of being victim-centered assumes that we know what victims want. 
So, yeah, what, what does victim-centered mean? I really like the idea that treatment can be used in a way that's going to be helpful to the people that have been harmed by sexual abuse. So what is victim-centered? I'm not entirely sure we've got a good answer to that. I know what it looks like in its absence. It looks like we're just going to reduce your risk. Um, is there a way that somebody can um, write at least a letter of, a, uh, not apology, but clarification such that even if it never receives the person, uh, goes to the person to whom it was intended, can still be a useful exercise? Is there a way for people to work with those that have been harmed? I guess when I think about victim-centered, I think about how far we have as a society to go in terms of understanding what moving forward and rebuilding lives can look like in the wake of sexual assault. So we talked a little bit about the containment model. Um, how is this different from risk needs responsivity or the good lives model? Those three basic principles of risk and need and responsivity tell us what we should be, you know, these are the principles that we should be adhering to. And yet, on the other hand, reserve your most intensive interventions for those that pose the highest risk and need the deepest dish interventions, if you will. Make sure your treatment programs are focusing on, on treatment goals that have a direct empirical link to reoffending. And finally, deliver your treatment in a style that your client can access or that's going to work for your client. The way that I've come to think about responsivity isn't just, well, it should be making sure that we're matching treatment to their motivation or their cognitive abilities um, or maturation or whatnot, but responsivity is really about taking a long look in the mirror and asking yourself, am I the professional that this client can respond to? And am I doing what's going to work with this with this particular client? That's risk and need and responsivity. So what I've always found my clients respond to is goals that they can achieve, goals that they can work towards. And we all have our own goals and certain things that we all share in common. We all want to be connected to other people. How many crimes have ever been committed through really misguided attempts to form some kind of connection. Flip side of that, we all want to be independent and autonomous beings too. We all want to have a life that we lead that's very much our own. And yet, how many crimes have been committed in the name of autonomy and independence? So it's not just in the good lives model we we talk about good lives goals these these goals that we're all trying to achieve in our lives and in very different ways so we've all got these goals that we meet in different kinds of ways and very often these goals are actually implicated in even the worst of crimes and so the person that wants to just be independent and autonomous just for once in his life, just for once wants to call the shots, just for once wants to make all the decisions and, you know, not feeling in control of himself right now, that's the person most likely to ruin his goal of relationships by becoming violent towards his partner as just one example. So over time, we've come to realize that the flip side of all of these risk factors that we read about 
in the in the research the flip side of them these things we don't want people to be are actually goals that all human beings want so reducing risk is the need principle and enhancing capacities is attached to the responsivity principle for the criminologists out there hello hello <laughs> That's how I've come to, to think about these things, which then leads into the idea of trauma and who are people who have been victimized. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is kind of switching gears a little bit. And I mentioned earlier that our last episode, we talked about females um, who commit acts of sexual harm. And so I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about your thoughts for um, women who have committed sexual harm, their needs for treatment. Are they any different than they are for um, men who get treatment for um, sexual offenses? Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to know where to begin with this. Um, I I can't take credit for it, but a, a criminologist friend of mine once said, "Go look at all of the reoffense research by uh, uh, having to do with women, and the risk categories need to have different names. Um, they have low risk, very low risk, and very very low risk. But at the end of the day, if there's anything I've learned from my um, uh, relatively scant experience of working with women who have abused it's number one do whatever you can to treat their ptsd first because it's probably going to be there almost certainly um, and then after that remember the relational aspects so one of the things that occurs to me um in listening to you speak is that one of the one of the things we often hear back not just on this podcast but in general in the work that we do you know men who sexually offend often have long abuse histories, women who sexually offend have even greater, longer abuse histories. Um, but not everybody who is abused turns out to be an abuser. So what do you say to the critic who comes back at you for the answer that you just gave? Okay. Um, the truly pernicious aspect of abuse, the most pernicious aspect of abuse is the unpredictable nature of what's going to follow. We don't know what's going to happen to people once that they've been abused. Um, I, you know, because of the nature of the work that I do, I am surrounded by survivors every day, and not one story of survival is like anybody else's. And let me just be clear: I am a man, and my answer about women just a couple of minutes ago is I'm coming at it knowing my limitations as a man. I just want to be clear about that. I understand. Uh, 
uh, men a lot better because I've worked with a lot more of them. Okay, that having been said, I work with women for whom maybe, I mean, they certainly don't want to go back and relive their life having been abused, of course. And on the other hand, they've come around to say, um, as a result of the worst experiences of my life, I'm uh, bigger, better, faster, stronger, um, and am leading a life that has a deep sense of mission and purpose, seeking to prevent this from happening to others. And there's really real meaning and real content uh, to that. There's relevance, there's significance to my life that might not have happened or would have taken a dramatically different turn um, along the way. Um, that they may well be a smaller part of this. My other bit of that I would have to say in response to pushback is, unfortunately, we need to look at the research Again, the pernicious aspect of abuse is we don't know how people will will react to it. Here again, I have to come back and say, even for those that say I was abused and it didn't affect me very much, then there may be effects of that abuse that are beyond that person's awareness. So what I urge is don't beat up on the messenger, please, but rather understand that there's no two ways to recover or reintegrate or move forward from sexual abuse. So we really do need to take it one person at a time please. We're talking about human beings. So sorry, that wasn't an elevator speech response. But it is a desperate, plaintive plea for understanding that people who abuse are different and people who have been victimized are different. And some of them do go on to, uh, uh, to end up perpetrating themselves. And we need to remember that they too are victims. And in an era where slamming each other and attaching nasty labels to other human beings here in an election year is the way people just seem to act is we need to remember we're all human beings. So a little compassion, a little love would go a long way, I think. Absolutely. So uh, a few minutes ago, you were talking about um, level of risk for women who sexually offend. And you said there's low risk, there's very low risk, and there's very, very low risk. But we also know from the literature that recidivism rates for men who sexually offend tend to be, at least at the aggregate level, relatively low. So can you talk a little bit about recidivism rates and treatment completion? Perhaps maybe you can discuss why recidivism or the lack thereof may not be the best measure of effective treatment. Yeah. Um, well, so first of all, as much as our recidivism studies are finding that reoffense rates are much lower than we might have thought, a couple of decades ago, we still don't know what we don't know. And we just need to be honest about that. That, more than any risk assessment, really, really worries me. And so these might, this idea of cognitive transformation may well be the most important thing. Instead of measuring, do they do it again, is measuring changes in dynamic risk factors. But I'm not aware of any studies that have said, yep, that's the holy grail of treatment completion. Have they reduced their risk factors? Sometimes we reduce people's risk factors so much that I've seen where we can turn them into little cognitive behavioral robots. I'm not sure that was it either. So I don't have a good answer to your question, except for at the end of the day, as I'm sure you guys know, uh, anybody that ever entered therapy 
was basically asking, how can I be a different person? We have cognitive behavioral therapy. We've got homework assignments. We've got treatment manuals. We've got all of these kinds of things. I don't mean to diss any of them. They're all important. To some degree, I want people to have a different experience of themselves, that they can experience themselves as competent and relate to others empathically, like I said before. But maybe what really is working in treatment is that we're offering a relationship experience where hope and possibility are born or reborn. Our friend Kieran McCartan says, is it reintegration into the community really, or is it integration? Because they were never integrated to begin with. So that's, I'm sorry, that's the best answer I've got. But I, I, do, I just look at what does everybody think about their treatment and have they been expressing their risk factors and I do everything else. But I look for those kinds of things too as a part of a clinical assessment. Thanks. I just wonder, David, how much influence do you think the criminal justice system ends up having on things like treatment effectiveness or determining treatment effectiveness? Like, What is that relationship like for our listeners between the treatment providers and, you know, criminal justice um, professionals? Well, I, I, you know, really, I need to start with most criminal justice professionals that I know are really solid, upstanding people that I would trust my own kids with if it if it came to that. Um, and on the other hand, there are still the systems and the policies that make functioning in the criminal justice system extremely difficult. So the end result being, and I'll go on record as saying this, I've spoken to many people who have said our probation officers are so afraid of their heads rolling if, if uh, there's a bad outcome that they end up by necessity having to be super controlling, using the polygraph every few weeks. I'm, I'm overstating that, but um, overusing the polygraph, overusing compliance measures, and then forcing treatment providers to do treatment in a certain way or else they won't get their contracts renewed. So I've known a lot of therapists who are saying, I don't get to do my best work because of the system in which I'm working. So I think as it is structured, the system is structured very well. However, it's the implementation of those structures via the misuse of policy. And as a, a colleague of mine, um, Lux Subramanian says, um, you know, every policy looks good on paper. Uh, it's how we misuse them um, that ends up being the, uh, the real issue here. I have guest lecturers come to class to talk about their work in community supervision. And the case they always bring up is J.C. Dugard. And they always say, you don't want to be the officer that didn't search, you know, that backyard or that, you know. So they always go into great detail about how important it is to search, um, you know, certain people's houses extensively a certain number of times, a certain, you know, number of weeks. You know, it's just... So there's an overwhelming concern for that liability or even personal, the way they see it, I think, is personal responsibility if they were to miss something like that. So, Yeah, and that case is my anchor point as well here on the other side of the U.S., um, which goes to show 
Um, you know, if we, there's the old saying that um, bad cases make for bad laws and bad policies. And unfortunately, the, the same goes for bad implementation. So um, throughout our time together today, we've sort of been talking around this issue. Uh, but I definitely want to name it and put it out there as a really important part of our conversation. Um, so I'd like to shift gears and talk a little bit about trauma-informed care. Uh, I know you have co-authored a book on trauma-informed care for people who sexually abuse. Um, so can you tell our listeners what it is, why it is so critical for working with clients who sexually offend, so on and so forth? Sure. I will try to be as brief as possible. Um, hey, you know what? Let me just start with a case example. That might be the best way to illustrate it. I will call him Paul. Uh, he's one of my all-time favorite examples of this. Um, Paul's risk factors. Um, uh, he uh, Never mind his childhood. It was horrific. I'll just say that. Just horrific childhood. By the time he was an adolescent, he was uh, perpetrating against younger kids. Um, he gets caught. He gets sent away to a juvenile treatment facility. Immediately, they start to recognize his um, his risk factors. He had a dyed-in-the-wool sexual interest in children. Um, he's as impulsive as the day is long. Diagnosis of ADHD, um, emerging antisocial personality disorder, um, just uh, uh, poor sec- uh, self-regulation. And the only way he knew to calm down was to masturbate to fantasies of abusing kids. I mean, just, just absolutely horrific. And what happened is he ended up in a treatment program where he went through the beginning stages of treatment so uh, so many times that he was actually a better facilitator of it than many of the therapists there. And unfortunately, I'm not really exaggerating um, all that much. So he could recite treatment chapter and verse, but he would go back to his living unit, see a uniformed officer. Um, and if that guy looked at him the wrong way, Paul would take a swing at him. And so therefore, he never advanced in treatment very far because he was still working on the risk factor of impulsivity before he could get into treatment where he would start talking about what he had done. And so treatment around him would be harsh, confrontational, and say, you've got every risk factor known to man and then some. You ain't ever getting out of here until you can learn how to behave. So your treatment needs to start now and, and delivered with a style that goes something like, shut, shut up and sit down. I am trying to help you. <laughs> so now if we were to re- recast all of this, um, that horrific background that he endured in, um, included multiple out-of-home placements and being brought up on a, uh, on a farm in the north of a, um, a state somewhere between here and the upper Midwest. And he uh, uh, ended up um, uh, just under, uh, you know, experiencing horrific abuse. That abuse and his multiple placements left him with a core belief that the world is in a patently and manifestly dangerous place where nobody can be trusted. His sexuality it was vandalized from a very early age. As much as he would love to have a sexual relationship with an adult female, he also, the closest thing that he ever experienced to affection was at the hands of the men who were abusing him. 
And so he, um, as a result, came to think of sexual abuse at an early age as being something that could be actually quite positive. He learned otherwise, but by this point, his arousal patterns were were telling him uh, differently. He had no ability to focus in school because he was busy trying to survive everything that he had been through but he was curious about his immediate safety needs. So he was a better risk assessor in that regard than I am. However, he overestimated risk, okay? So um, as a result, what looked like impulsivity to us was his desperately hanging on to a way of functioning that worked for him when he was a kid. So trauma-informed care with Paul means Number one, we need to understand the etiology of all of these risk factors. He didn't ask for any of them. And we might be able to help him to understand that his way of viewing the world is something he needed to do as a kid, but that has outgrown its usefulness now. If we only thought about risk and treatment need and a thinly defined uh, responsivity, we would be missing understanding him at a deeper level. And also, if we want Paul to feel heard and understood and respected, the hallmarks of a good therapeutic alliance, which is evidence-based practice, then we need Paul to um, uh, feel heard, understood, and respected. And we can do that by helping him uh, to show that we're trying to understand who he is. Now, did anything I just say involve specific trauma treatment like EMDR or trauma-focused CBT? No. Um, Paul never really needed those kinds of interventions. What he needed was sensitivity and an understanding. Now, he did not need to then go and kind of involve himself in a kind of navel-gazing. Oh, I found the key to my sexual offending. Um, it's because I was abused as a child. No. Rather, it's my upbringing and my experiences led me to survive the present moment in ways that were useful at the time and no longer serve me. Paul today would say, I learned how to meditate and I focused on the space between my thoughts and I focused on the space between my deeds. And I came to realize that I can focus on that brief space between when something happens and when I start to develop an idea of what I want to do about it. And in that moment of space between those two things, I can now envision myself making a better decision. And then I can use cognitive behavioral therapy. Read the criminological research. Cognitive behavioral therapy rules the roost in terms of what works. Paul could not change the way he thought and behaved because he never learned how to observe the way he thought and behaved. So that's a sort of whistle-stop tour, and we did indeed write a whole book about it, <laughs> if you want to deep, do a deep dive. <laughs> well, and we will post a link to the book on our blog for this. Um, I mean, trauma-informed practice is critical. In addition to conversations around trauma-informed care and trauma-informed practice, you have written about, and we have spoken at length, about the use of person-first language, both for those who sexually offend and those who have experienced sexual harm. You actually just published a blog post about it last week. Um, can you talk a little bit about this, both in terms, uh, 
you know, the, the topic of this uh, episode was about people who sexually offend. But I th- think it's also really important that we talk about the use of proper language for people who have experienced sexual harm, because oftentimes they're one and the same. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, I, I, I have to do a huge shout out to our mutual friend, Gwen Willis, who framed the question the best um, when she said, you know, why do we call people by the one thing we don't want them to be? The, the simple fact remains, we are dealing with human beings. And, uh, you know, far be it from me to define another human being's experience. I would not dare to presume to define someone else's experience. And so um, I am, I just keep thinking, we need to develop person-first language. We need to use this as a part of our vocabulary. These are individuals who have sexually abused. These are people who have been victimized, but nobody should be defined by the worst thing that ever happened to them. And nobody should be defined by the worst thing that they've ever done to anybody. And thank goodness that hasn't happened to us. Now, I'm perfectly happy using perpetrate and abuse and causing acts of sexual violence um, as a verb because there is a time and a place to say what is. On the other hand, I still remember a conversation where somebody says, look, sometimes you got to tell it like it is. So I tell kids, you are a juvenile sex offender. Well, I think that could have just as easily been accomplished by saying, Billy, you really hurt people. And there's a time and a place to have a conversation about this. And it might not be today. Uh, or tomorrow, but we need to have that conversation at some point. At some point, now that wasn't my best therapeutic skills there, but you get the you get the idea. So I guess what I'm saying is, we also need to move forward and remember we're dealing with honest to goodness human beings at every step of the way, which means I don't want to just you know kick our young people down the road, kicking you know and and ruin their futures. And neither do I want to throw out the uh, the people. Um, uh, who have been caused harm, but for whom the case may be difficult. I'm recalling in something that you once said, Alyssa, in the wake of a horrific outcome in a court case. Um, you said, you know what? This is why people don't disclose. And I said, I've actually stolen that line from you many more times than I've uh, told you until now. Uh, in the end, we need to learn how to express ourselves. These are individuals who've done terrible things, and we need, a, we need a good response. We need an effective response. We need a swift response. We need a no-nonsense response, perhaps, but we also need an effective response. And it starts with our language because it affects how we think. You know, one of the things you just said about we have to move away from, oh, my goodness, we have to do something about sexual victimization. Um, to actually doing something about sexual victimization, it goes to why Alexa and I started this podcast in the first place, right? If we want to end sexual victimization, we have to talk to and work with and have compassion and empathy for people who sexually offend, right? These reactionary policies, right? We just talked about this in uh, episode 10 uh, and episode nine. These reactive public policies that, and I say this in my TED talk, that name, shame, and isolate people, Um, they do not work. So if we actually want to end victimization, it is through this trauma-informed treatment that we provide to people where we respect their humanity or they're never going to make the connections that they need to make. There's so much naming and shaming in the world these days. (laughs) 
We just don't, uh, you know, I, I don't think we need to worry about depleting the world's supply of low self-esteem, right. okay? So. <laughs> I think it's just a, and also a basic respect for the fact that, you know, the the word or term survivor doesn't encompass all of who I am. And, you know, so we have to realize that a person is more than just this label that we give them, that they are a multifaceted individual, that they have I think it's really hard for people to see that about some people who perpetrate especially acts of sexual violence it's very easy to put the label on that person and then because they have that label we're okay with some of the policy or collateral consequences of some of the policies that we have um yeah. however the issue is is that we're not doing anything to stop sexual violence Exactly what I was going to say is, in the end, we know from world history, if you want to um, perpetrate genocide, um, come up with a good racial slur against the, the people you're hurting. It starts there with, with the labeling. Dehumanizing others, so. just other people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So thank you so much for sharing all of this really important information with us. Um, I have... My last question for you, I suppose, um, is what do you think is the most important thing you've learned throughout your years um, of experience working with people that have committed sexual harm and people who have experienced sexual harm? That, that people change and that even uh, people that we don't trust at one point go on to do truly amazing things. And many of them were on my caseload back in the 90s, and that you never know where the next hero uh, is actually coming from. So, yeah, treat everybody as a potential hero in waiting. People can change, and that when all else fails, let's get back to the basics of human connection and human communication. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Thank you for answering. Is there anything that you would like the general public, our listeners, to understand about treatment for individuals um, that commit acts of sexual harm? Like, What's the key um, message that you'd like people to understand? Treatment works and punishment doesn't. And that um, treatment that forms a connection with the person and helps them, assists them, um, and joins up with them to build a better life is going to be what actually works. So everybody has a part to play. Society should be angry about sexual abuse. Society should be talking about how uncool sexual abuse is because that public debate and dialogue is working. And from there, we've all got a role to play. Probation officers can provide good supervision. Treatment providers have their special role of providing treatment. The very brave people like Alyssa going in and doing the more um, impactful interventions, that has a, uh, a vital role. So from a distance, you may think treatment looks kind of, uh, kind of weird. Um, it really isn't. And it really is important. And we've got the numbers and the evidence on our side, most times, most places. Well, thank you so much, David. I'm 
I know I can speak for both of us when I say how grateful we are that you agreed to be on the podcast. Um, you know, it's one of the things that I've loved about doing this is the opportunity to spend time with uh, friends and colleagues, and I consider you both, um, to spend time talking about something that we're all really, really passionate about. And so thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Thank it was you. wonderful meeting thank you. you. <laughs> well, likewise, definitely. So see you next time. So we would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or questions about us. Uh, as you know, we are coming to the end of our season with only one episode left. Uh, we would like to do one final episode after that with any questions you might have. So please feel free to contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.